throughout history. Uh, we have countless stories of people when they're facing their own death. Uh, and over the course of history, what we see is that throughout time, people have thought different thoughts about how one should face death, what death should look like. In the 16th century, people thought that the way you died, the, your demeanor, even the look on your face at the point of death said something about your destination or your afterlife. A thousand years before that, uh, Greeks and Romans thought that, uh, that there was a different understanding uh, for when one faced death. And, and they have many stories of people dying. And, and without exception, uh, these stories have people facing death calmly. Uh, very collected, dispassionate, just going into death, almost unmoved. Uh, the story of Socrates and his death is one of these type stories. Uh, condemned, Socrates was forced to drink hemlock uh, as uh, his way of execution. And the story goes that he was surrounded by friends, those that would be following uh, Socrates and his, his school of thought. And they're just sitting around, calmly tossing around one-liners, until he drinks the poison and dies. By contrast, uh, Jewish literature shows a different type of story. Uh, They show stories of their heroes, of their victors in war and in battle, um, facing death very passionately. In 1 and 2 Maccabees, we see stories of of red, hot-blooded, fearless leaders praising God, singing and shouting just before being sliced to pieces by their persecutors. But in reality, nothing uh, in any of these traditions, whether Greek or Roman or even Jewish traditions, indeed nothing in ancient literature resembles the picture that Mark gives us of Jesus' final hours, of the final hours that he has uh, by himself before facing his soon coming death. We're going to walk through this text that you've already heard read, but I want to remind you of what Mark has said about Jesus in those moments that he's alone in the garden because I believe it sets the tone for us for the rest of the text, for the rest of the time that we're going to spend together in the Word this morning. So if you have your Bibles still open, keep them open the rest of the morning because we're going to walk through this text together. But skip with me to verse 33 because I want us to hear the words of Jesus again and let his demeanor, attitude, set the tone for the rest of our text. Verse 33, he, that's Jesus, began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. I'm going a little further. And he fell on the ground and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. Here we have Jesus opening his heart to his disciples, opening his heart to the Father, opening his heart to us as readers of Mark's gospel. He's laying bare his struggles, his agony, his fears about facing death. You hear it in the the language of, let this cup pass from me. If there's any other way that this could be done, if, if, if there's any way that I could be let off the hook here, if there's any way that I can get out of this mission Let's do that way. Let's go that way. Up to this point in Mark's gospel, we've seen nothing but complete control from Jesus. He has authority over nature. He has authority over death. He has authority over demons and and sickness. 
Everything that we've seen about Jesus up to this point in, in, in the gospel, nothing has surprised him. Nothing's caught him off guard. He's always knowing what's next. He's always knowing what's coming up, what's around the corner. Nothing's able to jar him, surprise him. And then all of a sudden, in verse 33, we read that he became deeply distressed. In the Greek, the idea, the language there in the Greek is that he, he was astonished. If you still read the King James Version, it gets at it a little better. And thinking back over the Gospel of Mark, almost a year now that we've been in Mark's Gospel, we've never even seen anything close to this from Jesus. And no point in Jesus' ministry is he shaken like this, is he astonished, is he deeply distressed. But then suddenly he sees something, he realizes something, he experiences something in this garden that stuns the eternal Son of God. The text says also in verse 33 that he was troubled. And again, in the Greek there, the idea is, is overcome with horror. Just petrified with horror. I want you to imagine this morning that you're walking down the street. It can be any street. Just imagine a street. You're walking down the street and you turn the corner and in front of you is a terrible car wreck. Just, just, a, just the car is mangled. It looks like a crushed soda can. And the closer you get you realize that there's someone laying on the ground outside the vehicle and their body is beaten up very badly and mutilated. And the closer you get, it's someone you know and love. What do you feel in that moment? Just nausea, a, a sickness in the pit of your stomach, maybe shock or grief or terror. Your horror in that moment would be so overwhelming, it would be like a cloud rising up in the pit of your stomach, physically choking you. If you've ever had to experience that, I, I'm sorry, but you wouldn't be able to relate to this. You would understand this if this is something you've experienced in your life. And this is the emotion that Jesus is feeling in the text. He says so himself in verse 34. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. So far in the Gospel of Mark, we've not seen Jesus to be an exaggerator. And so we take him at his word here. Something is going on inside of Jesus physiologically that is so deep and agonizing that he feels as if he's at the point of death. Jesus' death here is unique in ancient accounts, whether Greek or Roman or Jewish literature, but it's also unique in church history accounts. You think about this, we've all heard stories through church history of, of Christians dying, of, 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 of individuals, men and women, facing their own deaths for the name of Christ. We've heard martyr stories, Fox's Book of Martyrs. Christian men and women being killed, being thrown to wild animals or cut to pieces or burned at the stake. And what's strange is that many of them, many, many Christians even, appear to be facing death more calmly than Jesus in our text this morning. A few examples from church history. Polycarp, you may have heard the name. Bishop of Smyrna, uh, early church leader. He's discipled by the apostle John. He's taken before the magistrate, before the government leaders in his day, and he's told that he's going to be burned at the stake. And the magistrate actually says, I'm going to give you one more chance. If you reject Christianity, reject this Jesus that you've been claiming, you can avoid execution. And Polycarp says this, The fire you threaten burns but an hour and then is quenched after a little. But you do not know the fire of the coming judgment. Why do you delay? Come, do what you will. That's boldness. That's an incredible boldness in the midst of, of persecution and, and, and martyred, martyrdom. You have uh, Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer. Uh, just a couple summers ago, I was able to, 
to go to Oxford, England and stand in the very spot where these two men were burned at the stake. Jake, Jay was with me. And, uh, and we were able to see the spot where these two men were burned in 1555 for their faith. And tied together, side by side, the fire was lit at their feet. And Latimer looks over to, to, to Ridley and says, Be of good comfort, Mr. Ridley. Play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. It's incredible boldness in the midst of, of, of persecution and martyrdom. Why is it then that so many of Jesus' followers have seemingly died, quote-unquote, better than Jesus? More calmly, even victoriously, running to their deaths for the name of Christ when Jesus himself is in the garden here, overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. I propose to you this morning that Jesus was facing something that Polycarp or Ridley or Latimer or any other martyr has ever faced. Something that no other person on their deathbed has ever faced. Whether being persecuted or dying as a result of natural causes, there's something that happened in that garden. Jesus saw, Jesus felt, Jesus sensed something in that garden that shocked the unshockable Son of God. Well, what, what, what was it that Jesus felt? He was facing something far worse than physical pain or torture or even physical death, Jesus was facing in that moment made physical suffering, made torture, made persecution like flea bites in comparison. Jesus was smothered at the mere thought of what he would go through, go through on the cross, but it wasn't his physical pain that he was thinking about. Because you ask, well, didn't Jesus know he was going to die? Yes, Jesus has said that from the beginning, right? He's told his disciples numerous times that he's going to die and even how he's going to die and where he's going to die and when he's going to die. He knew all of these things. So what's going on now? What is it in this moment that he's experiencing that's far beyond physical torture, physical death? What is this terrible thing that's found in the very center of Jesus' prayer in the garden? Take this cup from me. Take this cup from me, Father. Take this cup from me. I want to remind you, because we've mentioned this earlier in Mark's Gospel, what the cup is. The cup is a metaphor for God's wrath, divine justice being poured out on injustice. You see it in the Old Testament in Ezekiel 23. Now, you will drink a cup large and deep, a cup of ruin and desolation. Isaiah 52, the cup that made you stagger, the goblet of my wrath, God says. So from eternity, remember this, this is, this is helping us to set the tone for what Jesus is praying in the garden here. From eternity, Jesus knew nothing but complete love, complete unity with the Trinity, right? Even in his incarnation, even as Jesus became a man, whenever he turned to the Father, he was overwhelmed with love from the Spirit. We see this in Jesus' baptism and his transfiguration, this, this union that they have, the Father, Son, and the Spirit. But here's the reality. What happened invisibly in the baptism of Jesus and the transfiguration of Jesus happened every time he prayed invisibly, right? The union that he shared in the Trinity. But in the garden, this began to change. In the garden, as Jesus is praying, in Gethsemane, as he's praying, he turns to the Father, but instead of being overwhelmed with love, all that he can see before him is wrath. All that he can see before him is the abyss, the nothingness of the cup. God is the source of all love, all life. God is the source of all light. 
Jesus began to taste here in the garden what it would be like to be excluded from all love, from all life, from all light. Jesus began to experience what spiritual, cosmic separation from God would be like as he bore our sins on the cross. He was beginning to taste, see, feel the separation from God that every one of us deserves. And so, let's walk through this text and see together how this unfolds. I'll give you a bit of background just to remind you where we're at. If you've not been with us for a while or if you're new to Poplar Spring, we've been walking through Mark's gospel. We've just uh, watched Jesus celebrate the Passover with his disciples, a very different type of Passover where he institutes the Lord's Supper, where he shows his disciples physically with, with bread and the cup how his death and resurrection would be the ultimate and final atonement for their sin. And yet, even as this feast is taking place, even as they're celebrating Passover together, Jesus knows that this dark cloud, this doom is looming overhead, which was really, what he's really wrestling with today is the wrath of God that's going to be poured out upon him. And leaving that Passover, it's only hours at that point, until Jesus' followers will completely betray him. We see every one of them will fall away. They'll fall away uh, in, in their failure to pray with him in verses 37 through 42. Judas will sell him out for a little bit of money in verses 44 through 45. They'll abandon him in verse 50. They'll deny him, verse 66 through 72. And he'll be handed over to his enemies that have been plotting his death since chapter 3. Go back to chapter 3 of Mark and you'll see that this has been taking place for a while. They'll torture him and they'll kill him as a criminal. Jesus' suffering is multifaceted. It's physical suffering, of course. Crucifixion was awful. But it's, it's personal, mental, emotional, and most of all spiritual su- suffering that Jesus will encounter here that he'll go through. And here's the reality. Jesus saw his Father's hand in every moment of it. So we read in Isaiah 53, the Lord was pleased to crush him. We read in Mark 1 and Mark 9, it was the will of the Father, Father to kill him. Why? So that he would not have to kill me and you. And, and here's, here's the thing, though. Even in all of this, even in this most grievous time of agony, his most trying hour, Jesus trusted the Father. Not for a second did he take his eyes off and, and, and allow uh, temptation to, to have him mistrust his Father's will and reasoning. Our text gives us this morning kind of three snapshots at this multifaceted suffering. So this morning, Jesus' abandonment, Jesus' agony, and Jesus' arrest. His abandonment, his agony, and his arrest. So snapshot number one, his abandonment, verses 26 through 31. Let's read together again. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Jesus said to them, "You you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. So they finished this Passover meal together probably sung one of the psalms as they're making their way out to the Mount of Olives. Jesus is walking with them, and the night gets even more strange. Remember, the the Passover they just celebrated was really different. Jesus went completely off script from what they had heard 30 years now growing up in the tradition, the Jewish tradition. 
gets even more weird when he tells them that every one of you guys are going to fall away. Every one of you guys are going to betray me and, and, and desert and, and, and leave me. And he's doing this to prove the prophecy, Zechariah 13, 7. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And this prophecy that Jesus is using, even here in Mark's gospel, uh, is, is showing us several things. One, that his death was divinely planned. I will strike, God says. God used evil intentions of man. He used the religious leaders of that day. He used their sinful actions to work the greatest possible good in saving sinners like me and you. Jesus is fulfilling the will of the Father. The Father is the one that set this into motion, and it's his plan. And indeed, we'll quickly see that the disciples will be scattered like mice, like afraid little mice, and they'll leave Jesus. But he assures them, even when you do that, even when you leave me, even though you fall away, I will not. That's really good news for us, church family, that Jesus will not tuck tail and run. Our salvation, our eternity depends on the fact that Jesus did not cower and run. He promises that after he's raised, he's going to meet them back where it all started, back in Galilee. Remember, that's where he's been doing the bulk of his ministry. That's where he met these guys, and they've been doing ministry together. He says, I'm going to meet you there in Galilee after this is all over and I've resurrected. We've been studying on Wednesday night through the, song, through the Proverbs. Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride comes before destruction and an arrogant spirit before a fall. Our buddy Peter this morning would have done well to remember those words in that proverb because on hearing Jesus' prediction that he's going to, to, uh, to betray Jesus, he pipes up. Even if these other jokers, even if these other disciples that we've been walking around with, even if their lack of commitment would lead them to betray you, Jesus, I'm never going to do that. I'm never going to betray you. Friends, don't miss what, Jesus, what Peter's doing here. He's basically calling Jesus a liar. Jesus said, you will all fall away. Peter says, nope, not me. He's calling Jesus a liar. And the Lord responds. And even though I'm sure there's a bit of rebuke here uh, in his voice, I have to imagine he did it with compassion. Peter, I assure you, brother, this very night before the rooster's finished with his job, you will deny me not once but three times. And you would think that kind of specificity, that kind of detail, that kind of patience and long-suffering from Jesus would silence Peter, but it just adds fuel to the fire, and Peter adds, uh, or, or ups the ante and says, even if I have to die, Jesus, what you're saying will never be true. I will never deny you. And apparently this conversation kind of plays the role of the, the coach giving the pregame speech, right? Trying to get the boys pumped up, because that's exactly what it does. And all the other disciples now are pumped up, and they say the same thing. Yeah, we're not going to deny you either. We're going to be like Peter. We're never going to deny you. I think there's some application for, his, for us here, church family. In seeing Jesus' abandonment, we would all like to think that we would succeed where Peter and the others failed, right? Like either one, we wouldn't deny Jesus, or two, we would at least have more humility. We'd exhibit more of a, of a humble spirit and an ability to hold our tongue better than Peter, right? And I think the reality is, like these disciples, we all abandoned Jesus, we choose to ignore his word and do things our way. We choose to go about life like we want to. We've denied Jesus when we, when we fail to speak up in our office and, 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 and share our faith or to, or to make a stand on our convictions because of what other people might think. Or uh, we, we deny Jesus when uh, our buddies are talking about something and we fail to share the gospel with them because we're afraid of, 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 of rejection. Jesus accepted that he would be abandoned here. He understood that from the beginning. He would be abandoned. You'd be left alone so that you and I would never have to be abandoned or left alone. 
makes the words of Hebrews 13.5 all the more precious. I'll never leave you or forsake you. Why? Because I've been forsaken for you. I've been forsaken. I've been abandoned for you. I'll never leave you or forsake you. Snapshot number two, Jesus' agony. We've seen his abandonment. He's already said, hey, you guys are going to scatter. You're going to leave. Second, we see his abandonment. Look at verses 32 through 42. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John. And he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. And they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The, time, the hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. We've already discussed this a bit, but it bears repeating. We will never... No, we will never understand on this earth the depths of the agony and pain that our Savior endured on this night as he contemplated the ocean of wrath that he would be drinking on our behalf. He takes his disciples into the garden called Gethsemane, a place they would probably go often, probably a place they had been before. He tells them to sit and, and pray as he goes on ahead and he's going to pray by himself. This is the third time that Mark has recorded Jesus going alone, being alone in prayer. This time more significant than any other. He takes Peter and James and John, the, the inner three, the inner circle, as some have called them, and they go a bit further with Jesus in the garden, and he desires for them to sit and stay here as he goes on. And as he moves on from them, as he leaves Peter, James, and John, and begins to move on further in the garden by himself, the weight of this burden crushes him to the point that he physically, physically can't even walk any further. A.T. Robinson, his commentary says that the inner circle would have been able to see him collapse with the, the way that the Greek is worded here. They would have watched that collapse take place. And from the other Gospels, we can piece together that he first fell to his knees, Luke chapter 22, and then to his face in Matthew chapter 26. And so you just get this picture of Jesus just walking. And, and, it, and it's really a picture of this, this scene on the Via Della Rosa, the, the, the cross just crushing him to the point that he can't even physically walk any further. Yet here, there's no cross on his back. There's no physical weight on his back. He just collapses under the weight of what he's bearing. And there on his face, as he's prostrate on the ground, he prays repeatedly. And the substance of his prayer is no secret. It tells us in the text, and it was not in a whisper. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7 gives us the rest of this picture. Hebrews 5, 7 says that in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and with tears to him who was able to save him from death. And only a stone's throw away, right? Just a short distance away, Jesus' closest friends are there and they could see him fall 
prostrate on the ground before them, and he's just agonizing, God, if this can be, if this can be done any other way, if you could let this cup pass from me, if, if we could do this any other way, let's do it. Let's go a different way. I don't know that I can handle this. I'm, I'm broken. And they see his exhausted body convulse as he, as he begged God with tears. Loudly, Hebrews says, with sweat drops like blood falling to the ground. They could see his agony. Can you see his agony? Can you see what our Savior is, is bearing? The load, the burden, the weight that is upon him in Gethsemane. We don't stop there. Here is submission even in the moment of his greatest agony. Look at verse 36. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Matthew 26 and Mark here in, in Mark 14 inform us that he prays this three times. Repeats this three times. Do this, please do this. If this cup could pass from me, yet in spite of the agony of this moment, despite the weight of this moment and the burden in this moment, the certain future that lay ahead, his death, his, his physical torture that was coming, he trusted the Father's plan. He knew his Father's love. He knew his Father's will. And here's the reality. It was still possible, even at this moment, even at the 11th hour, even during this garden scene, it was still possible for Jesus to abort his mission and to leave us to perish. He could have still turned and ran at this point. He knew what was coming. But he doesn't even consider that an option. It's not that like this is an option and he's like weighing the options. That's not even an option for him. You read it closely and look what Jesus is asking. He's begging the Father to carry out this mission in some other way. He's not asking the Father to abandon this mission altogether. Why is that? Because as horrible as this cup is, as horrible as this wrath is that he knows he's about to endure, he knows that his immediate desire to be spared must bow down to his ultimate desire, which is to spare us. And in that moment, he begs God, if there's, if there's no way. Tim Keller says this about part of the text. It's a lengthier quote, but bear with me because it's really good. Often what, seem, what seems to be our deepest desires are really just our loudest desires. Do you know how, especially when you're in intense pain or a great temptation, you can't even think straight? You turn on the people who you love, you make shockingly self-destructive decisions, you say and do things that you not only know are hurtful, but actually undermine the people and values you love most. Well, at one of the most supreme moments of personal pain in the history of the world, Jesus doesn't do that. He says, yet not what I will, but what you will. He's not even saying to God, I think you're wrong, but I'm going to let you win this one. No, he's saying, I trust you no matter what I'm feeling right now. I know that your desires are ultimately my desires, so do what we both know must be done. Jesus doesn't deny his emotions. He doesn't avoid suffering. He loves into the suffering. And in the midst of suffering, he obeys for the love of the Father and for the love of us. When you see that, instead of perpetually denying your desires or changing your circumstances, you'll be able to trust the Father in your suffering. You'll be able to trust that because Jesus took the cup, your deepest desires and your actual circumstances are going to keep converging until they finally unite forever in the day of the eternal feast. We have that kind of, of trust in our Father. Certainly Jesus knew what was coming His way in, in taking and enduring the wrath of God. What are our struggles compared to that? 
If, if Jesus can trust the Father's will and trust the Father's plan in that moment, then whatever we're going to go through tomorrow is but a flea bite. We can trust our loving Father, whatever our circumstances are. And Jesus, enduring all this agony, suffering this anguish for the souls of men and women, his closest friends are just a stone's throw away, snoozing like babies. He chastens them for sleeping. They fall into temptation. They go to sleep again. It says their eyes are just so heavy, right? Some of you guys know that feeling, right? You're probably feeling it right now. Gosh, eyes are just so heavy. I don't think I could keep them awake. They couldn't keep them open, even to pray. Even when they see the physical torture and agony that Jesus is enduring, they can't keep their eyes open. Even as they see Jesus coming back, I'm sure, wakes them up. Verse 38, you can imagine the compassion in Jesus' voice. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The Spirit... Is indeed willing, the flesh is weak. Jesus, hey guys, look, I know you want to be strong in this moment, but your flesh is still so weak. There are things coming in your future that you're going to need to endure the temptation that would come from the evil one. Stay awake and pray. He knew their hearts, but he knew that they would also fail. Happens a third time, and then Jesus comes back and says, well, enough is enough. Time has come. Jesus' will and the Father's will are perfectly in tune. And then you see verse 41. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And here's this, 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 this full circle, right? From, from seeing Jesus broken down and, and literally sorrowful to the point of death to now Jesus has set his resolve. His face is set on the cross. He says, rise, let us go. My betrayer is at hand. Nothing's going to deter. Nothing's going to change Jesus' resolve at this point. That's why in Hebrews Hebrews 12, verse 2, as for the joy set before him, he will endure this cross and all that it entails, the wrath of God that is about to be heaped upon him, he will endure. The Father's will and Jesus' will in his humanity are one, and he has set his face to the cross. Danny Aiken says this, Gethsemane was hell for Jesus. But I'm also thankful that he went through it. You see, if there is no Gethsemane, there is no Calvary. And if there is no Calvary, then there can be no empty tomb. And if there is no empty tomb, there is only hell for us. We rejoice this morning for Gethsemane. That in that moment, Jesus set his resolve, set his face to the cross, and nothing would thwart that plan. Well, snapshot number three, we've seen his abandonment. We've seen his uh, agony. Now let's see his arrest, verses 43 through 52. And immediately, while he was still speaking, uh, Judas came, one of the twelve, with a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck Uh, the servant of the high priest, and cut off his ear. Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. While Jesus is still talking with them, after waking them up the third time in in the midst of their slumber and, and trying to pray, one of the twelve, Judas, comes up with this mob from the Sanhedrin that, mixture of temple police and Roman guards. 
It's part of the plan. Judas had told them, hey, I'm going I'm to give the guy a kiss, and that's how you're going to know the one to, to arrest. Seize him. I think it's interesting that Judas tells him to seize him and lead him away under guard. You think Judas had just been around Jesus just enough to know that if, Ju- if Jesus wanted to get out of this, he probably could. You better be real careful about how you take him, right? I've seen him raise people from the dead. He can certainly get away from you. They take hold of him, verse 46, and even though they give him no official charges, no official arrest, they, they take him away, and, and this likely startles the disciples, right? Because in a moment uh, of, of reactionary uh, fury, one of the disciples, who we know is Peter, strikes the high priest's slave, cuts off his ear. John 18, Luke 22 show us that this is Peter, the striker, and the victim was Malchus. And even though Jesus is being persecuted here, even though he's being wrongfully uh, seized and taken under guard. He shows mercy even in this moment by healing Malchus's ear. We don't see that in Mark, but we see that in the other Gospels. Well, Jesus rebukes the mob, right, for their extreme methods. <laughs> he, he reminds them of his ministry. He says, hey guys, look, I'm, I'm no terrorist. I'm no robber. I'm no political insurrectionist. He reminds them, day after day, I've been in the temple. You've seen me there. You've, you, you watched me there every day. They knew who he was. They could have arrested him at any time. Easily. They just could have walked over to him and arrested him right there in the middle of the temple, yet they didn't. Instead, they arrest him at night in a secluded place under the cover of darkness in quiet because they're a bunch of cowards. They're afraid of what the, the, the populace may say. They're afraid of what the people may say if they find out that they're arresting this one Jesus that's done so many great things. Well, it was because they were a bunch of cowards, but it was also for another reason that they came when they did and then in the way that they did. Verse 49 says... Uh, from Jesus, let the scriptures be fulfilled. He proves, hey, you could have done this at any time you wanted. I was in a temple every day. You saw my ministry. You knew me. Yet let the scriptures be fulfilled. Jesus knew this is how they would have to come. Isaiah 53, verse 3, says he was despised and rejected by men. You see this. Verse 53, verse 8, he was taken away because of oppression and judgment. We see this. Verse 53, 12, he was counted among, among the rebels. He was treated like a rebel. He was treated like, a, like someone who was a criminal. So Jesus says, let the scriptures be fulfilled. This is how you were going to do it, because this is how you had to do it, so that prophecy would be fulfilled. And then you have the sadness of verse 50. Read verse 50 with me. And they all left him and fled. They all left him and fled. Every single one of them defected and left Jesus alone in this moment of greatest agony and in this moment of his arrest. And, and, and those that, that, that had just a short time, just, I mean, just moments, maybe hours before, had boasted that they would die for Jesus if they had to. Now they're nowhere to be found. And here's the irony of the situation. They boasted, Jesus, we'll die for you if we have to. We'll do whatever we have to. But in actuality, they weren't even there and able to stay awake for him. And when his arrest came, they were nowhere to be found to speak a word for him or to stand up for him. Then you have this really strange couple verses, 51 and 52. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. And he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Now, church family, this is weird. Um, no clue why this guy was following Jesus and the disciples with just a linen cloth on. Uh, there are some things in Scripture that don't make sense in our culture. But when you look at them from the perspective of their culture, when you look at them from Jesus' culture, it makes complete sense. This is not one of those times. 
This is weird no matter where you're from or when you lived. It's just weird that this guy is following around Jesus and the disciples with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. Verse 51. Either way, this guy's there, and they try to seize him along with Jesus. And he puts on his mad dodgeball skills and is somehow able to escape them and outmaneuver them. And they end up grabbing the loincloth. Now, this had to have been a close call, right? Like, I don't even want to picture this scene, but he runs off naked because they're left holding the, the loincloth. Church history tells us that this young man was Mark, the writer of our gospel, and that this was sort of his way of secretly uh, giving sort of an autobiography. I was there, and so just know I was there, but I don't want to put my name on it because this is kind of embarrassing, right? Uh, we're, we're not 100% sure, but that's what history would tell us. Aiken again comments on this and says, As in the Garden of Eden, our nakedness is exposed when we desert the God who loves us and has graced us so abundantly with kindness and good gifts. Absolutely. Well, Jesus is arrested. He's forsaken. He's all alone. His disciples have deserted him. And he, and he by himself is about to face the wrath of God and the wrath of men that have been trying to destroy him from chapter 3. And he will receive what we deserve so that we can receive what he deserves. And this great exchange that we talk about, our lives for his, his righteousness applied to us, our sinfulness applied to him, this great exchange has begun. It started. He's been betrayed to the hands of sinful men. As one commentator said, in the first garden, the garden of Eden, Adam said to the father, not your will but mine be done. And all of creation was plunged into sin. In the second garden, the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus, the second Adam, says, Not my will, but yours be done. And the redemption and salvation of creation begins. Eden brought death. Gethsemane begins new life. This is real love, church family. This is real, incredible love. And this love, the love that Jesus is displaying here, even in the garden, even in his brokenness, even in his sorrow that is sorrowful, even to the point of death, this is the love. This is the kind of obedience that, that brought the, the wide and deep wrath of God, the righteous wrath of God to nothing. Dissolved a mountain of wrath that was due us. This is the love you've been looking for your entire life. No family love, no friend love, no mother or father love, no spousal love, no romantic love. Nothing can satisfy you like this kind of love. See our Savior in the text and know that his brokenness, know that this weight he was carrying was for your redemption and for mine. All other loves will let you down, but not this love. He died for you. And in the garden, we see a snapshot. We see a glimpse of this that he's beginning to taste. He's beginning to experience what that kind of separation would mean. He did it for you. Would you give him your life today? Let's pray together.